Hey everybody, welcome to Thumbnail, a visual arts podcast. I'm Joe Roshert, illustrator, animator, and adjunct professor. And I'm Louis Rosignal, visual artist. And today we've got a special guest with us. And he's a rapper. He's put out children's books. He's done tons of stuff. His name is Spose. And he's from the state of Maine, which is where we're from. We're really excited to have him. And the reason being, out of all the people I personally know, he's the king of marketing and hustling. He's a great rapper, which is important but he's just so smart with that type of stuff and obviously this is more of a visual arts podcast the last conversation i had with you suppose we were really discussing all of the similarities between visual arts and music and the way you can market it and so i thought we could talk about that type of stuff yeah that's awesome and and thanks for having me on i'm super stoked to come uh, on you guys podcast yeah well we're really happy to have you i want to get right into the first thing which is you know obviously you're in maine we're in maine and most people think of, you know, if you want to do something cool, like be an artist, like a visual artist, or if you want to be in the music business, you have to move to like New York or Los Angeles, right? Yes. And so we all know that that's not true. You can make it work. And so I wanted to talk to you about that and get your perspective on why you like Maine as your base and how it's working for you. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think overall, I guess, you know, like a lot of kids, I started rapping when I was you know, in high school, and I graduated in 2004, so this is right in the, you know, Eminem came out when I was like 13, and Jay-Z, and Biggie, and 50 Cent, and all these things were happening, and Tupac, and like whatever were all happening in my era, as well as, you know, kind of underground rap, Aesop Rock, and Slug, and Atmosphere, and Cannibal Ox, and you name it, and so I was just trying to imitate all the rappers I knew who were from basically the places you just described. They're all from these big cities. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to imitate them. And I think maybe that's what every artist does when you start out is you try to draw like the comic book you like. You try to draw like the things you love. Right. And so for me, I was just trying to, you know, that's how you learn is you emulate. And so I was trying to emulate those rappers. And I kind of had an epiphany with the help of my friend Cam Groves, who's also from Wells, Maine, and was rapping with me in high school when I saw some rhymes he had wrote about going to Irving you know, the gas station in our town and like the clothes on his floor and just the details in his actual life, almost like not exaggerating it or not rounding up to say he's from Boston or Portland or whatever, or trying to sound cooler than he is, almost just being himself. Simultaneously, I was also very into writing. I wrote like CD reviews for the Portland Press Herald when I was like a teenager as this, it was almost like a gimmick. They had like teenagers write CD reviews, but I was one of them and I was very into writing, you know, and reading books simultaneously. And kind of all at once, I had the epiphany that, you know, my favorite author, John Steinbeck, wrote about primarily the Salinas Valley in California and then, you know, other things he personally experienced. And he didn't, basically, he didn't try to tell you about anything he didn't know firsthand. And then simultaneously, I saw Cam's rhymes and I was like, oh, 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 I can just be me. That was like a big moment for me, maybe 17 or 18 years old, figuring that out. And I've kind of rode that wave ever since of, this is who I am, and you could take it or leave it, and this is the town I'm from, and you can take that or leave it too. You know, but what I've realized is that stuff really resonates with people if it's honest, you know, and so I never really tried to talk about anywhere that I hadn't been or seen, and so the details are real. Yeah. The details are not like my secondhand, thirdhand information or what I deduced from like watching a documentary or like this is actually what I've seen. You know, and I think that now when I go to anytime anybody has me talk to like their high school students or anything like that, I always just let these kids know, even if they're up in, you know, Rumford, Maine, you know, the middle of nowhere, that their story's good enough. Yeah. You know, and so I think that's kind of what I try to 
what is really my motivating factor is I kind of don't think twice about being from Maine or that that might be a detriment, but rather that's an attribute in that I don't know too many other people telling this story, A, and then B, this is the only story I got. So it's like, I better be down with, with this story, you know, and Maine and where I'm from and kind of the way the rappers I mentioned will rep like Brooklyn or rep, you know, Atlanta, you know, Outkast repping Atlanta and all the street names in Atlanta and, you know, and Jay-Z talking about the Marcy Projects and Biggie talking about Bedford Stuyvesant. You know, these are, I wanted to do that. I love those rappers. You know, those are some of my favorite artists of all time, you know, and I want to do that, but I'm not from those places. So I just decided I would rep Wells, Maine as hard as they rep, you know, Brooklyn or Atlanta. Right. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, that is really a great thought. And it's so smart, too, because if you're an artist and you move to where all the other artists are, the big cities I was talking about, and you start living the life that all those other rappers or artists are living, then you're having the same experience as them. And you're maybe just making songs that they've already made almost in a way where you're, you're just being totally authentic to yourself, right? And the cool thing is you automatically have a really great built-in audience of all the people from Maine and Wells and the area around here that are going to definitely really connect to you. But you can't underestimate the fact that people in small towns all around America, even if they've never heard of some of the places you're mentioning, like Aroma Joe's and Wells and stuff, they still get it. They have their own places that are just like those places. You nailed it. You nailed it, Lewis. That's exactly it. Because I'll be honest, man, when I started doing it, I really didn't think it was going to, you know, my first album, Preposterously Dank, I put out in 2008. And I was pretty much convinced that the only people who are going to buy this are my friends, you know, like the people right. I knew from Wells and, and maybe surrounding towns or people I went to college with or, you know, whatever, people in Sanford, maybe, you know. And so I remember I went to do an in-store right around that time at the Sanford Bull Moose, which is like my record store growing up and probably yours too, Lewis. And it um, was, yeah. Yeah. And so this is like a iconic place to me to be able to play my own in-store concert. And this guy hung, this kid, he couldn't have been like 20 even. And he's like hanging around at after I had just performed, and I was about 22 at the time, and he came up to me and he's like, yo, man, goddamn, he's like, that song, goddamn, he's like, that's like exactly my experience, da 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 he's like, it helped me get through stuff, and I was like, oh, what? I was like, wait, what? Like, these songs can help people get through stuff? Like, I was just trying to rep, you know, impress people with the rapping, and so that was a big moment, and then when I started going out into America and going out on tour, you know, obviously there's a lot of details between here and there before I'm out touring on my own, Right. You know, I'd go to these towns and they'd be like, you know, I'm in Colorado and they're telling me they drove from the next state over in some little town and it reminds them of Wells, Maine or, you know, and the craziest one was when I went over to England and I'm playing in the UK and dudes flew in from Sweden and Norway and they're telling me, oh, yes, it's just like my town. You know, it's right on the water and we got to, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, this is so if you just tell the truth, that's universal, you know, is what I realized. That's fascinating. It's the key to marketing is authenticity, especially now these days, even on social and all that jazz. Everyone can see right through that if you're faking it or not. You you have to be completely authentic. People buy into you as a brand rather than what you're trying to represent. Yeah, that's it. And I I don't want to like sit here and claim like I'm more authentic than the next guy. But I think if you just be you also, sometimes that can mean saying things that might piss people off, you know, like just be you. I think people will at least respect it. And at the end of the day, you can live with yourself. It's not like you are selling out for every trend or every gimmick. It's like you said is the best marketing because those people are 
with you for life in a way. It's like they'll buy the thing you put out next year because of you didn't lie to them. Yeah. Yeah. You're finding your tribe. Your tribe's finding you, you know, so it's way more organic. Yeah. What about the idea like of staying in Maine? Maybe that's a small pond, but you can be the biggest fish in Maine or you can move to like a New York City and then be a really small fish in this huge pond. And there's definitely benefits to being the big fish. And I was also thinking, I know, you know, you've put out albums, I put out books. And if you have like a record label, you have to sell millions of albums to make any money because you're getting such a small cut. But if you put your own music out or put your own book out, you really just have to have a couple of thousand of, you know, hardcore fans and you can make a decent living. So there's a lot to be said for doing things yourself and being a hustler, too. Yeah, and I mean, I saw that kind of contrast very quickly when I signed a record deal with Universal Republic in 2010, and I must have sold 700,000 singles. Like, I went gold in a couple weeks, and but I was sad. I was, like, sad about it. You know, it was like they made me feel like it was a failure because we didn't have the next single, you know? And so it's like, meanwhile, if I had sold 700,000 singles on my own, I'd probably retire. You know, it's like, you know, right. it's like not that it, not that I realistically will ever retire because I just love doing it. But I'm just saying like the money when you're independent versus, you know, when I was signed to the deal and then a year later when I lost the deal and I was selling songs on my own, I was like, if I sell 10,000 albums, that's a lot of money. You know, that's a lot of money right to me and that allows me to keep doing the business. And so I mean, I will say, I mean, me and Lewis talked about this on the podcast when we were talking about how, you know, I've kind of been stuck at the same number of followers for almost like five, six, seven years. Like, there's really not many new people coming in like, wow, I just found Spose. I'm a big fan now. It's like a lot of these people have been with me for years and years, and it's the same people kind of keeping me afloat financially, supporting the brand, repping for me every time and coming to the shows when I go on tour. And so that's just to say, I think outside of the major label system, you can really create hardcore diehard fans because you're more engaged with them, A, and they see them supporting actually helps. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. I've noticed very similar things with books and just finding out you really don't need to have a million people that follow you. You just need to have the diehards and they'll continue. You know, I see, because I sell on Etsy and I see a lot of the same names buying each book that I put out and all the different prints. And so number of customers you need isn't huge if there are people that'll buy anything you put out. And I mean, if you take time and care and effort and don't kind of retrace your steps and keep doing something unique, those people will be there the next time every time. So it's like, yeah, I I absolutely agree. I mean, I'm kept afloat by a very small number of diehard Spose fans. I mean, I'd say maximum at best, it's like 10,000. And at minimum, I mean, it's like maybe a thousand people you know, who are there for every release. So it fluctuates, but you don't need that many. It's like, I I see people with like 60, 70,000, you know, 100,000 Instagram followers, but I don't know that they're making, I think they're selling something kind of fleeting or they're not really cashing in on it or whatever. And it's like, you don't even need that many to do it. Right. Right. No, it's true. You just need to have, uh, they say if you have a thousand people that are like diehard fans, you can easily make a career out of art or out of music. And so it really isn't that many people that you need. And if you have, like you're saying, because some people buy followers or whatever on Instagram mm. and, you know, to make themselves look like they're doing really well, but they may not be doing well at all. And so that's not really a great gauge of how someone's doing. Yeah, no, it's exactly it. And I think, I don't know, man. I just think you're doing, like you said at the beginning, Joe, it's like people see right through any lack of authenticity. Right. You know, people are not like easy. Yes, people are very dumb. 
but like in society, like you feel that way sometimes, but the people you're trying to sell to are not that dumb and they see right through the stuff, you know, and it's like, you just can't take it for granted or think you're going to get one by on people. And kind of my overall mantra for my brand, I never like wrote this down or like decided this was my plan. This is just what became over the years. And I eventually, as I was explaining it to my daughter the other day, was like, oh, this is what it is. I try to give people more than they expect for less than they expect to pay. Yeah. It's kind of it. You know, you over deliver. If you like the last album, I'm trying to give you a better album this time with better artwork, a bigger marketing scheme, a the, you know, whatever. If you come to my show, you know, and you're expecting it to be a rap concert that starts late with 15 opening acts. Oh, surprise. We're starting on time. And I don't fuck with opening acts. Like we're just going right in and doing the show, you know, and here's a full band. You thought I was just going to be rapping over my own lyrics or something. So I think yep. that type of quality dedication to quality, even if it loses me a little money sometimes, is what makes the brand so sustainable. I agree. Generosity is huge, I think. People like appreciate the effort you're putting in. I do want to talk about your children's book because, it, first of all, it's, it's a great children's book. And I wanted to talk about it because you worked with Steve Jenrin, right? At, he's the illustrator that illustrated the book. And Correct. so I want to talk about a couple things. First of all, I know it kind of loosely was connected to one of your albums, which is a cool marketing technique, but also just a cool thing to do. And then also working with an illustrator like that, because you wrote the book and then he illustrated it. So I wanted to talk about the fact that you had to allow him the creative freedom to do what he wanted. You wanted it to be a certain way. So can you talk about working with a visual artist like that and how you go about communicating what you're looking for, but allowing the freedom that he wants also to have some creative license. Yeah, great question. So yeah, me and Steve Gendron made this children's book called Pinecomb Pete is Not Impressed, and I wrote it to coincide with my album We All Got Lost, because another like of my mantras that I try to, for better or worse, I believe that making good music is not enough. Like, it's not enough to get people to care about your good music. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I've made an app, and in this case, the children's book. And so I wanted to, you know, try to, and that's another case of trying to over-deliver. And for better or worse, you know, sometimes I lose money on that. This time I made money, but I can't help but try to tackle stuff like that. Working right. with Steve, the reason I even reached out to Steve to do the children's book is specifically because Steve Gendron and I have already worked together 10 to 15 times. I already have a great working relationship with Steve where I know I can be open. I know he can handle any sort of, you know, not that I would ever hit him with like aggressive criticism, but constructive criticism or, oh, I was thinking more like this. Yeah. You know, I'll draw it out shittily on paper, you know, and yeah. text him a picture of it, you know, and I've done that with my album covers too with Ryan Kohler, who's done a lot of my art for me. I know Steve and I communicate well, and I think that's like the number one thing especially when you're undertaking a task, it's 24 pages and then a cover, back cover. This is a lot of images, you know, and a lot of Dropbox and a lot of PNG files and Photoshop files. And so I laid the book out in InDesign, Adobe InDesign, which I had learned in high school to do yep. my high school newspaper. And so I actually hadn't used it since then. So it was a little bit of a learning curve getting back into it. So Steve would send me the art and I kind of sent him a Adobe InDesign file that was like, here's the layout of the book. You know, here's the text, here's this, yep. feel free to move the text around. And as he started drawing, I started kind of realizing like, oh, this doesn't translate as well, or this won't work. Or, and so in the process, I'm editing the book myself and resending it to Steve like, yo, yo, use this file now, you know, use this one now. Here's, I think we got yep. up to 32 different 
edits, you know, because I'm editing as I'm seeing what he's doing. I'm like, oh, oh, this is where he could really flex on this page. And so a lot of it comes from trying to do the best I could, but also trying to put Steve in a position to be great, trying to put him in a position to do what he does best. That's kind of what I do with musicians, too. Like if I'm going to like I just did this song with this band, this main band called the Mallard Brothers Band. And I didn't go into that trying to bring them into a rap world and, you know, sample their beats or like whatever. I was like, you guys just do what you do best and I'll fit in. You know, I'll find a way to fit in. And I think the, the Pinecone Pete and working with Steve and working with any artist is kind of that way. I look at what they do, look at what they do great. Yep. I try to fit my vision to that. If you put it in like a sports metaphor, it'd be like you're trying to make the kicker into the quarterback. You know, it's like you can't do that. It's make people do what they do best. And so... Me and Steve, for months, I'll just be up front, I was paying him per page, you know, so it was a per page fee, you know, so he'd send me a thing and, you know, I'd PayPal him the money and whatever. And then it was very painless as a process just because, like I said, I worked with Steve before and Steve kind of knows what I'm looking for. And he also knew the timeliness of it because I communicated, you know, I need this by this date to get the books printed, you know, to get the album out. And it was a fun process. And I really enjoyed kind of laying the book out in InDesign. Part of my job doing the music stuff specifically becomes very like mental. It's very in my head as to like, oh, is this song good enough? Is this going to sell? Am I wasting my time making this? Is this too weird? Does this suck? Is this as good as my last album? Whereas laying out a children's book, you know, I don't have any of that because it's kind of just fun for me. So I really enjoy those tasks that are kind of a break from my job, jobby job, so to say. Yeah. What were some of the hardest things or roadblocks you've had with Steve? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. Steve's maybe one dude I never had to have like a really serious get on the phone with like type of intervention. We just text because it's chill. With Steve, I will say maybe there was a couple pages maybe where it got too busy. Yeah. I think we were both kind of learning that. And honestly, I think the next children's book we do, if we do another one, we've learned so much that we know even we didn't get to see it printed until the end. And we're like, oh, it's too busy. It's too busy overall. There could have been more space and stuff like that. You know, we learned that you almost can't see until it's in physical form. Or I'm sure, you know, experienced book authors know that shit already. I think working with Steve, working with Steve was, to be honest, a piece of cake, partly because I'm also a little bit of a visual artist as well. And so I have a lot of skills in Photoshop and, like I said, InDesign and stuff like that. So I'd have him, if something was weird, I'd just have him send me the PSD Photoshop file and I'd get in there and edit to kind of make it to fit the text or do whatever I needed to do. To be honest, Joe, I'd be really reaching to find something that was a struggle with Steve. Yeah, well, that's great. I thought it was interesting, though, because like a lot of our listeners are visual artists. And so sometimes we talk about working with a client and trying to make them happy with your art. And so it's cool to get your perspective on the other side of it, where you're working with the visual artist and he's trying to make you happy with your story. And obviously you're an artist, too. So it makes it easier. I think it's always easier when you're working for another artist because they understand the creative process more. Unfortunately, a lot of times illustrators end up working with people that maybe they're not artists and so they don't get things and it can be way more hard. So it's good to keep the communication open so you can really try to understand you know, what they need, what they're looking for. Yeah. And I think I've found the first time I kind of had this epiphany was in high school and it was, you know, I was always like into music and kind of a weirdo, but I was very talkative, you know, and, and outgoing. So I was always involved with student council or like whatever, just because I felt like I could lead people. And so I remember in student council, it was maybe 
sophomore year or something, and we were trying to pick our theme for something or like homecoming or something. And everybody shows up and they're all sitting there and they don't have any, you know, they've tossing out ideas. But I had like made, not to say made a presentation, but I'd at least drawn something on a big piece of paper and taped it to the board and everybody bought into my idea. And it was, and I realized, oh, if you just present something to someone and take them halfway, you know, they're more apt to follow your vision, A, but just to buy into it as opposed to the next guy's thing. And so to relate that to what we're saying about Steve and just working with artists is I'm never going to hit somebody up and be like, yo, we should do something together. (laughs) You know, it's like I'm coming with the idea maybe halfway done. I'll take it as far as I can on my own to present them like here, you know, and part of that is to instill confidence and excitement in them. Like, yo, I'm thinking of a children's book. It might look like this. And I think that helps guide the artist so they're not guessing. They're not guessing what I want. Like, it's clear what I'm looking for. Not that I'm trying to be like, yo, it's got to be like this, but like I'm trying to at least have done my part to get the ball rolling. That's nice. I think that's rare in a client, especially when I'm working with clients. I think that's rare to do that, to find that much vision already laid out. And so a lot of my job is to pick that out of their brain, really figure out what they're trying to think. So I think that's great that you bring that to the table. You know, you see it sometimes with people. Some of the great, you know, I'm really intrigued by musicians like Beyonce or um, David Bowie or Kanye West or these musicians who kind of have always been really hands-on with presenting their brand and their vision. You know, those are part of my inspirations. But I think I would imagine if you worked with any of them on a project, there would be no guessing. You know, it'd be, here's what I want. I love this, I love this, and I love this. I hope not to place myself among (laughs) those people, but I just try to use that as my inspiration as well. Yeah, that's great. How did you find Steve? How did you two meet, or how did you first initially You know, that's actually a great question. I'm trying to think how I met Steve. I don't want to say it was through Instagram, but it might have been through Instagram and that we're in the same town, because I grew up in Wells, but I moved to Sanford, and I think somebody had shown me something he did for somebody else. And I was like, yo, who did that? And I followed him on Instagram and ended up reaching out. And, you know, I had him do uh, concert posters for me initially, you know, and then I think he might have did a t-shirt for me or something. You know, it's just little things like that. I had worked with him a few times before I ever met him in person at Aroma Joe's, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I actually know Steve a little bit. I know his brother more because I went to school with him. It's funny, like, how many people that we both know. You know, I never met you before, but I knew so many people probably that you know, and we were from the same area. Dude, it blew my mind when you said you went to Sanford High School because I knew your art. I didn't even know you were from Maine when I knew your art, you know? So it's, like, such a crazy thing. But I do find in this little area, especially of York County, there's, like, a lot of talented you know, maybe not per capita, like I don't know what the percentage is, but there's definitely a lot of talented people I super respect and am inspired by who've come out of this area. Yeah, no, there really is. And it's always cool to see, like you said, especially if you see someone and you really love what they're doing and then you find out they happen to be from your town or your small area. What I do want to talk to you about, so I remember, I'm trying to think back when this was, but I remember you, I know you did like an album where you did a game where you like each level was like you had to beat a level or something to get the song. I can't remember exactly how it worked. So sorry about that. But but then you've also done cool things where you've put like, I I think this was you, didn't you put cash inside some of your CD? Yeah, that was a good one too. (laughs) So the reason I wanted to talk about it is because it seems like you, and then you do the children's book, which connected to an album. So you do these really 
cool, unique things which are just in themselves interesting, but they're also great marketing tools. You seem to be like really smart with how to market yourself. I know it sucks talking about marketing because you just want to put your stuff out. I think if it out. sucks to talk about marketing, you probably suck at marketing is my thought about that because <laughs> marketing's like the fun. I don't know, man. That's what it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, like, out of all those things that you've done that are kind of outside of the box, which one maybe was the most successful or the one you enjoyed the most? And then was there one that you tried that just didn't fit? Yeah, great question. I will say at the root of it, I do have like a underlying, (laughs) I hate to keep using the word mantra. I don't even like that word. But the underlying thing of my marketing is there's only like one universal truism about marketing. And that's that the thing that moves the needle and like is the best marketing is always just the thing nobody's done before. It's just whatever nobody's done. If you've never heard of a rapper making a children's book, then that's the good marketing. If you've never heard of someone making their songs unlockable in a mobile app where you fight through the counties of Maine, you know, that's at least a good idea. And then the, with the money and the CDs, it was Small Business Saturday or something which is a scam because it's a promotion created by American Express, the credit card company. So it's not a small business whatsoever. It's like a big, insidious, parasitic corporation. And so they sent, I think maybe it was like $2,000 or something to Bull Moose Music to use to market Small Business Saturday. Bull Moose Music is a local record chain in Maine and New Hampshire. So Bull Moose, because I'm probably the artist who sells the most CDs through Bull Moose locally, they hit me up and they were like, hey, you got any ideas how we could use $2,000 to promote your We Smoked It All 3 that was coming out that month? And they're like, American Express gave us the money. I was like, fuck American Express. Let's give it all back to the people. And so uh, we put the money (laughs) in the CDs. I had at the packaging place in Biddeford, who I used to print my CDs, I had them put money in as they were printing them. So they're wrapped in plastic and you never knew. And so some of them had like a hundred bucks and like whatever inside of them. You know, obviously that's a marketing tactic to get people to go buy more CDs. Nobody's ever going to buy four copies of your CD unless they might get a hundred bucks. So like, I understand that. But the bigger thought was it's altruistic at the root. You know, it's like sticking it to the man. It's all these things. So that one really appealed to me and kind of fell into my lap. But my overall thought is just like, what have I never heard of anybody do before? And so I'm always trying to think of that. And I've realized sometimes my ambitions are sometimes too much. You know, when I did the mobile app, I mean, I full on started a company, hired these kids who went to University of Southern Maine who were like coding geniuses, specifically this one kid. And I had him hire a few other kids who he trusted to fill the gaps in his expertise. Now I'm running like a company essentially, which is not something I'd ever been done before. So that's an uphill fucking battle trying to manage people, which I do think I'm good at. I think I'm good at managing people but I don't think I was prepared for that level of managing people, their flaws, paychecks, you know, all this stuff. And meanwhile, I don't really have enough money to fund that. So I'm doing it all out of my pocket. I'm taking advances on my next few months royalties to pay for this. But the biggest thing about that was I hired a visual artist again. I hired, her name's Hanji, and she lives up in Rockland, and she does this thing called O-Chang Comics. And I had seen Ochang Comics and I'd met her at a Down East magazine like Gallo with my wife and I met her and her husband. So I kind of knew Hanji and I reached out to her and I said, hey, is, would you have any interest in meeting up with me? Because I figured we should meet up because it's a pretty big ask. I asked her if she would be interested in making all the art for a, a mobile app for me for a game, for this game, Spose the King of Maine, which you can still go download. 
you know, so, I mean, Hanji is making animations, which are each, you know, 15 to 16 frames each, you know, so tweaks of the same PNG file or whatever. They're, I think they're called sprites. They, we used to call them sprites. So that's like sprites, a... Sprites, yeah. Yeah, and so she'd be making sprites, and I'd be in the sprite sheet creator, you know, learning how to chop them up and make them into animations, and then I'm learning a little bit of coding, and I laid out all the levels myself, so I'm always trying to do as much as I can, the heavy lifting or the legwork I can do, but obviously I suck at actual drawing and doing illustrator, you know, and Hanji's great, so she killed it on all the art, and what attracted me to Hanji as an artist is I thought her style would be great for my style of the game, so it wasn't like I'm like, do this whole new style you've never done before, it was what she already is great at, yep. and so Paying Hanji was actually the most expensive part of that game. I'll just be upfront. I think I paid her about fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars for all this art, and yeah. then I paid all the kids who did the app thousands and thousands of dollars each. And I spent all said and done thirty-one thousand dollars on an app with the hope that this app would be the moment where everybody realized, oh, this guy's not just a rapper, and I'd get all these articles, and I get all these think pieces, and everybody's trying to interview me, and they're sharing the app. And all these bigger artists are reaching out to me, asking how they can get their own app. And now I'm an app company owner. And at the end of the day, we only made like $7,000 back on the app and I lost tons of money and that was the end of it, you know? And so despite all the work and the months, and I, I mean, I was up late at night, every night, every morning, stressing about this, driving up to Portland to go with Quentin, the lead developer, to sit with Quentin and make this app, you know, and make it, and it's really two or three apps in one because it's a game. It's like a scroller game where you fight through main and you're playing as me and you, and within that, the levels, you find these coins and the coins unlock the songs and the music player. So the music player is its own app, you know, inside the game. So we had to make a Spotify basically, you know, I still stand by it as like, I don't know anybody else who's done anything that dope, you know, as far as like music marketing. But it definitely was a financial L for me, you know, definitely a huge loss financially. But I I guess I wouldn't take it back because if I didn't do it, I'd be sitting here telling you how I want to make an app, I think. So for me, I got to scratch every itch and try everything. And so the book and the app and the putting the money in the CDs and I'm trying to think what other stuff I've done. I did an album in one day, you know, which is kind of marketing in itself. But part of it, man, to go back to your point about big fish in a small pond being in Maine, it's very easy to get on the news in Maine. There's just not a lot happening, you know, especially people doing kind of exciting things or the arts or, you know, this or that, that that they haven't seen before. And so everything I've just listed became a news story in either the Portland Press Herald or the Portland Phoenix or the Bangor Daily News or Channel 6 or Channel 8 or Channel 13. And so... I kind of know that, but at the end of the day, the goal isn't to get on the news because I did this cool thing. The goal is to sell the album. Right. Yeah. No, you're right about that, though. I just look at the owner of the Sunday River Brewing that's opened yes. way ahead of when he's supposed to, and now he's all over the news. He was on Fox News, like national news, and now he's got all these people. I think he raised like $93,000 already on a GoFundMe, and obviously, I'm not saying what he did is right or wrong. I don't care, but I'm just saying like, it's not that hard to get on the news if you're doing something different or unique. Great point. It's a great comparison, even though obviously like, I don't agree with it, but it's with him. But yes, that's exactly it. It's like the news, not that he's even really probably thinking on that level, or maybe he is. I don't know how smart he is, but the news here is manipulatable in a way, and all that is is free advertising. Right. Of course. Yeah. It's really interesting. I was thinking about... Because, you know, you were talking about, of course, the app and you did lose money 
in the long run, but you learn so much and you're going to fail. If you're an artist in any way and you're trying to succeed, you're going to have, we talk about this a lot, but you're going to fail a lot, probably fail more times than you succeed. But if you're not willing to put yourself out there and accept that you might fail, you're definitely not going to succeed. One million. I mean, print that on a shirt. That's it. That's it, man. It's like, I've only ever made one song that was a hit and I've put out 212 songs. You know, it's like you lose way more than you win, but even the minor wins add up you realize over time it's not so much about the wins or the losses but about doing the art doing the music and playing the shows and it's really about and and the creating the songs and the people you meet through doing it so if you're not willing to lose you're definitely never going to win yep exactly i also like what you said about you want to find something that you can do that that nobody's done before like the game you were talking about it's just something you've never seen before And I always tell that to people, for instance, like I'm on TikTok and I see all these visual artists and they make pretty much the same videos as each other, you know, like they're doing time lapse, but in the exact same way. And they basically join that app or any social media site. They just look for other artists and see how they're using it. And then they just copy them. And yeah, you get some followers that way. But if you can come up with your own unique way of marketing yourself, your own videos that's really different from what other people are doing you set yourself apart it's going to be way better in the long run i mean run. if we went through and listed the iconic people in any medium whatsoever be it movies quentin tarantino or like artists music artists or your artists actual painters the people who stand out and the people we remember are always the people who have their complete own style and something completely unique i mean my big thing is like if i see anybody else do it I don't want to do it. Right. It's kind of it. It's very rarely I see anybody in my particular field of main music artists. Like I hear songs that really inspire me, but rarely do I see them do anything marketing wise or visually that I'm like, oh, that's crazy. I've never seen that before. But when I do, it's so inspiring to me and it just inspires me to not copy them, but to inspires me to find my own unique thing I can do. And so I just think unique stuff inspires unique stuff, but it definitely also inspires the basic people to just copy it. Do you think, you know, because I'm awesome, wait, that's the hit you're talking about, that that was your biggest hit probably by far. Do you think that the reason it was so big is because it was just so different? Like, if you think about rap lyrics, they're usually just talking about, you know, all the money they have, all the girls they have and all that. And it's like the exact opposite of that. You know, and I mean, 100%, man. And I, I think Obviously, I knew that as I'm writing it, but I'm not thinking of it as like massive international hit song. I'm thinking of it as, oh, when I play this for my buddy, he's going to be like, yo, like, that's crazy. You know, it's like I play it for my, you know, my wife was my girlfriend at that point, but I played it for her and her friends and they were like dying laughing. And it's just that's it. It's like if you can flip a something that's like the norm on its head almost like break the third wall not really but in a way you know it's like anytime you can do that 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 usually works you know and and so with that song also not even subject matter wise but musically was so different than everything that was on the radio because especially at that time it was all singing techno it was like edm techno songs and so this was there's no singing there's not a melody in the song which, which I think is what stunted it, actually. If there was like a sing-along chorus, it probably would have gone super crazy. 
but it was just so unique. And also you never hear anybody besides Beck, you know, loser or something. You never hear a song like that on the radio. It's always like you said about, you know, especially with rap songs about how great they are and how, which I, I don't have any knock on that because I think the value of bragging rap songs is that it it's not that that person is bragging and that's not the point of it the point is it's supposed to make you feel like you have a lamborghini you know it's supposed to make you feel like you're dr dre and so there's value and merit in that stuff and i appreciate that type of music for sure so i was just kind of flipping it on its head you know with something i knew would make my friends laugh but what i found is if it makes your friends laugh chances are it makes everybody laugh right yeah, no, it's true. It made me laugh. And it's not like, I, I know you said it's your biggest hit, but I bet most of your really hardcore fans, it's probably not their favorite song of yours because of the fact that it's a biggest hit. But you have so many great songs. So it is weird to like dissect that because I know the print of mine that sells the most on Etsy, it's not my favorite piece I've ever done. It's not mm. even close. It's not even close. So it's weird when that happens when it's, and I don't know if that song was your favorite one you've ever written, but I'm assuming it's probably not. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not for sure. And I think to my like diehard fans, the people who are with me every year, you know, and always at the shows and buy the stuff, it's not their favorite song either. You know, that's almost like the casual fans favorite song or the person who only knows that song. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? Or do I have a favorite Spo song? I almost... It's tough for me. It's a hard question. Yeah, it's a hard, a hard question. question I, my immediate, I will say, the immediate thing that popped into my head, be just to follow my gut, was to say that my favorite Spose song is this song, Knocking on Wood, which is the song I close every show with, for the most part, or open the show with, and it really kind of distills my overall goal in life, which is to feel good about the things I have and not be miserable about all the things I don't have. And so that song, morally and also just musically, it's like guitars and hip-hop all in one and so that's kind of me as a person also so i think that's like as close you know it's one of the closest to what i'm trying to get at i feel like i'm still trying to get at the perfect spose song but i'd say that one but i think what's great is i think sometimes for artists that big song of theirs becomes a becomes a burden in a way and for me it definitely is like an uphill battle fighting against people who think i'm just like the i'm awesome guy or a joke rapper or whatever that's definitely part of the, you know, just another chip on my shoulder that I use as motivation. But I think um, overall, that song has, it didn't get so popular that none of my other songs even compare because, you know, I've got a couple songs that are almost up there in the number of streams I'm Awesome gets every week, every day on Spotify or whatever, you know, those songs being Greatest Shit Ever, Nobody, Knocking on Wood, stuff like that. The song Good Luck With Your Life, which is kind of like a play on I'm Awesome, <laughs> obviously. Mm-hmm. Those songs, you know, I get monthly income basically from streaming and that's kind of my base salary. Like that's how I stay alive and feed our kids and pay the bills and reinvest in myself. And that base salary, you know, my monthly salary doesn't include I'm Awesome. I only get that money twice a year from Universal. So that is to say I'm able to make a living without I'm Awesome money whatsoever, which is what I had hoped after I'm Awesome. And I was very, I'm very thankful to have kind of worked my way there yeah that's great that's cool so you say you get like your income from streaming but you obviously have other ways that you have income with merchandise because i know we always talk about how artists i know i get i have prints and books and then i do originals and commissions so you probably have the same thing where you have most of your income comes from one thing but you probably have a lot of different baskets that you're pulling from to, for your income I'm assuming. 100 percent. and as we kind of discussed you know i obviously have a book out i get money from the book every now and then you know i have the app out that does some money. But the other primary sources of my income are merch, selling merch, both through my website and at shows. 
And thankfully, during the quarantine, I actually had like a shirt become kind of popular. So I've been mailing hundreds of those at home because my printer's out of commission during the coronavirus. So that's been A, a bitch, and B, a good problem to have. And then my other, you know, my really big, you know, source of income is playing concerts. You know, that's really where I get the... But that said, I don't tour as much as the next musician because of my kids. I've had kids, I've had at least one kid since I dropped you know, a couple months after I dropped my first album. So I've never had my music not concurrent with being a dad. So I've always tried to stay off the road as much as possible. That must make it a lot more difficult. I mean, 100%. I mean, almost everything in my life is made more difficult by being a dad, (laughs) but also it removes the, maybe the most strenuous part of being an artist and a creative and, you know, an emotional person with a fragile ego is that I'm not searching for anything. Like I'm not out on the road searching for love and happiness and validation because I do have my wife and our kids. And so that's kind of my thing. But conversely, I'll never forget. I mean, we sold out. First time I'd ever sold out a show outside of like New England was I sold out Denver on a tour a few years ago, you know, which had always been a good market for me, but I'd never sold it out. And we sold it out. And I just remember the next morning feeling so guilty about being away from home that I couldn't even enjoy that I sold out the show because it was like my daughter had like a soccer game or something. So it definitely sucks being a touring musician and being a family person until you can get to the bracket where you're bringing your family on tour. Yeah, I'm sure that's hard to get to that bracket. Yes, it is. I super appreciate that you took the time to talk with us. And I have one last question and maybe Joe will think of one more too. For sure. We have time for two more questions. The last question I have for you, and then Joe can finish, is let's say someone hasn't heard your music ever, right? and they want to check you out, what song would you say would be the best intro to Spose? You know, the song you'd want them to hear first, to give the best first impression. Actually, I had a really intriguing Instagram message that I received in my like other, other Instagram folder where the people who don't follow you can message you. And this girl hit me up and she goes, I'm a new fan. I heard the song Suicide Doors and I'm a fan for life now. And so that rings on my mind as, Because in my mind, my initial response was to tell you they should hear the song Marcus Smart, which is just a super lyrical, barsy song for like three minutes of rapping, 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 which is really what I want to do. But to hear somebody find my song Suicide Doors, which is about how fame has killed so many people and, and that even when you reach the mountaintop, there's still depression and suicide and scrutiny and all these things. You know, I was like, oh, that's a perfect first Spose song to hear because that's like as real as it gets. That's what I'm trying to say is like I'm trying to preach like empathy and that the, you know, deep kind of life observations and stuff like that. And so Suicide Doors, I think was it for her at least was an awesome first song to hear because now she comes to me knowing I'm an artist of substance, so to speak. And so I think that's a great one. But then also the songs I kind of mentioned, like Knocking on Wood, which kind of distills me as an artist is another great one. And so Thankfully, there's a few options, but I would say I'm Awesome is not the perfect first Spo song to hear. <laughs> the first song I heard was the Drugs Girls Money Liquor with the Weezer hook in the beginning. Yeah, man. It's still probably one of my favorites. I think I like that song Goat the best, but you have so many great songs. So if you're out there and you don't know who Spo's is, definitely get on YouTube or Spotify and look him up. And there's definitely some songs you're really going to Thank dig. you. Yeah, no. And I'm being genuine. So I'm still fascinated by the app and how you basically had to 
build a business to release that. And that that was a huge undertaking. Well, I think it was money well spent. I don't think it was a loss. I don't think it was a total failure, whatever you may think. I think there's still room to grow in, in this space. Do you think the same? Do you think you'll maybe jump back into the app yeah, game I, at all? Thank or? you, first of all, for the compliment on it. I think, yeah, I've got I could sit here and list my laundry list of like lifelong ambitions and things I still want to tackle. The app, you know, I actually even talked to Quentin, the lead designer about the app a couple months ago because he really, you know, we really put our sleep and our love and our time and our effort and my money all into that app. And so it really is something we're very passionate about. And, you know, it was only three years ago, but I guess the short answer is I would not risk my own money on it. Just because it, it took a long time to course correct to get my rap business back to profitable after that big loss. And so I want to make sure, you know, I protect that number one. But if I had somebody else's money to play with, not only would I work on that app, but I've got a couple other apps that I've conceived in my head that, you know, because what is the saying about like necessity is the, the cause of invention or something? I have a couple necessities that I've encountered in my job that I'm like, oh, I could make an app that would help everybody with that. So I got a couple of those maybe I'll pursue down the line. But I do think the big takeaway from running essentially a small software developing company for a year by the seat of my pants was that, oh, I can do that. I am capable of that. I learned lessons, some hard lessons, even just with like employees, how to sew things up so there's no fight about money after, you know, or this or that. And I definitely had contracts and I I got a quote unquote video game lawyer and everything. So I was protected. But I mean, these are all learning curves. And I think with anything, man, the second time you do something, you're way more experienced and you, you know, you can jump right in. And so. Exactly. That's more what I'm trying to get at is, yeah, the second time is probably going to be way better. Yeah, I would, I would definitely think so. And, and I've already proven it. I mean, and even with my first album I made. I never was hitting people up like, yo, check me out, check out my stuff on MySpace. MySpace was like the thing at the time. I was never like, yo, check it da 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 da. I literally made the CD, printed it, walked in and handed it to people. Here, please check it out. You know, it was like and I think with the app, it's like, yo, here's the app I made. You know, it's like that's the proof to show that we can follow this through to fruition and stuff like that. And I think that's like a especially, you know, and shout out to the kids who the developers, I guess they're in their 20s, so I shouldn't call them kids, but the developers who jumped in with me on it and Hanji, because we were really walking blind through the forest making that app. So like you said, the next time I definitely am. It's definitely something I would do again. I just probably wouldn't risk my own money. That makes sense. I think all the things that you talked about today, crossover into visual art, I think people can take a lot from it if they're not a musician and they're a visual artist. And so it was awesome having you and I don't have anything else I want to add. Do you have anything you want to plug? You could just find me on Spotify, you know, Spose or, you know, I'm on all the socials. I'm on the, the Twitter. I got a Twitch. You can find me on Twitch, the real Spose, where I, I've been doing some live concerts during quarantine. And, but just look me up. Go find a song you like on Spotify. And I think you, the rest will do itself. This has been really awesome. I, I love hearing this insight and behind the scenes of your marketing mind. Oh, Thank super you thankful for us. you guys having me on. I'm obviously like a fan and I'm happy to um, offer at least my experience. And, and like you said, you know, Lewis, hopefully, um, I definitely think there's some universality to kind of everything. I was talking about marketing wise that applies way beyond just rap music or music in general that hopefully, you know, the listeners can take. Yep. Yeah, definitely. That's why we thought we should have you on because I, I knew that there's so much crossover. I just want to thank everyone for listening and uh, stay safe out there. Have a great day. Yeah, thanks. Take care, guys.